This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, helping the people of the world to live healthy lives. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you all for joining me this week. We are back to talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is food. Some of us struggle when it comes to healthy relationships with food, what to eat, when to eat it, how much to eat. These are all big questions that we're going to break down today. So joining me to do that today is Dr. Petty. He is one of my favorites, and he's going to help us figure out how to eat healthy and be balanced. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me, Claudia. I'm very, very excited to be here as a naturopathic doctor and functional medicine doctor. I'm very passionate about the topic of nutrition because when used appropriately, nutrition could truly be the greatest form of medicine. And unfortunately, nowadays, there's just a lot of misinformation about nutrition. And so today, my goal is to shine some light on some different topics in nutrition and give you some pearls to walk away with. And you know what? We're so grateful for that because I feel like so many of us struggle with the idea of what to eat. It becomes stressful because we all want to eat healthy because we know that eating healthy gives you energy and vitality. But sometimes the struggle is how much of which foods do we actually eat? So how much carb do we include in our diet? How many proteins? How much fat should we include? Because over the years, things have changed so drastically that it's hard to keep it all straight. So can you help us out with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, before we were really focusing on food as energy only, which is true. Yes, food does provide us energy and calories, but we also need to keep in mind where the calories are coming from, right? So it's not all about quantity. It's about quality as well, because the new research is showing that yes, food is calories and energy for the body, but also food is information. The food we eat has the ability to turn on genes, turn off genes, has the ability to affect our gut microbiome, has the ability to increase inflammation or reduce inflammation. So we need to keep all of this in mind when we're making our decisions as to what we're eating. So we can't just think about, oh, how many calories are in this? Because if we equate, let's say, 100 calories coming from French fries versus vegetables, they're not the same. So we need to always keep that in mind and not look at food very one-dimensionally. And so when you keep that in mind, it's important for us to understand that, yes, you know, I have to be mindful of my amounts, my proteins, my fats and carbs, but also I need to be mindful of where they're coming from. And as a general rule of thumb, you know, there's a lot of ways to go about this, but what I recommend my patients to do to simplify it is to have three meals a day and one snack. And those three meals, you want to make sure they contain adequate protein as well as healthy fats because the protein and fats are what help keep the blood sugar stable, give you energy and um, the carbohydrates. We want to keep them to a moderate amount, not too high, but we still need carbohydrates because they provide us with fiber and a lot of the plant foods that we have, the legumes, they have carbohydrates. So yes, they should, they are needed and important part of the diet, but we just want to make sure we're not getting too much as a rule of thumb. I like to make sure that none of my meals have more than 30, 40 grams of carbohydrates. That make, that's allows me to make sure that my blood sugar remains stable throughout the day and it doesn't spike. And when you, when you pair that amount of carbohydrates with protein and fat, what the protein and fat does is it slows the rate at which the carbohydrates are broken down and absorbed into the bloodstream. So it kind of stabilizes the blood sugar response as a result from eating the carbohydrates. 
So I, to summarize, I like a handful protein, whether it's animal protein, non-animal protein, that's your choice, but I think protein should be in every meal as well as healthy fats and a small to moderate amount of carbohydrates coming from whole foods, not processed foods, whole foods like legumes, vegetables, um, some grains, as far as quinoa is concerned, those things are acceptable. And so what I'm, I always get this question, let's talk about micros and macros and also Give me some good examples of non-animal protein because I feel like people struggle with that because what about somebody who's not eating chicken or shellfish uh, or beef? What are their options in terms of getting the right protein in their body? Sure. So we'll start there because we just were talking about protein. And so the non-animal proteins that I like to use are the legumes, you know, chickpeas, lentils, beans. Those are excellent. I like uh, tofu organic only because soy is very, uh, it's a GMO. So we want to make sure it's organic. And then the nuts and the seeds, those are also very good sources of protein as well. So with those, um, it's possible to get sufficient amount of protein in the diet the nuts, seeds, um, the legumes, as well as some organic soy. And so where does quinoa stand in this? Is it a protein or is it considered a carb? Uh, it's both, right? So quinoa is, is a grain, but it also has a complete amino acid profile. So thanks for mentioning that. I left that one out of the list. But yeah, quinoa, um, definitely good, a plant protein source, but it's a grain. So we want to keep that in mind. And some people don't do well with grains. Okay. So now micros and macros, those can be a real source of confusion because mm. it's hard to figure out what they are and why we need to kind of balance those two. Sure. So macros refers to the macronutrients and we have three of those, the protein, carbs, and fats, right? And it's a good rule of thumb. I think it's very important for everyone to get adequate protein because protein, not only does it keep blood sugar stable throughout the day, as I said, but it helps with skeletal muscle mass, which is very, very important as we age, we lose muscle mass. So we want to make sure we're getting adequate amounts of protein in our diet to preserve that muscle mass. As well, protein is very important for the immune system, something that we don't talk about enough, right? And so in order to make sure we're getting enough protein to support the muscle mass and support the immune system, we need at least one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight, at least. So I weigh 85 kilograms. I need at least 85 grams of protein to sustain a healthy immune response and to maintain my muscle mass. As far as pro, um, fats and carbs are, are concerned, some people could do better with some carbs, some people not so um, good with carbs. So that's a personalized decision, but I think everyone should have healthy fats in their diet as well, right? And, um, you know, we, we have this misconception that fats are bad, fats are bad, but this is a little outdated because now there's a lot of research showing how important healthy fats are for us, for our brain, for our body, for the mitochondria of our cells, fats or precursors to our hormones. So, you know, things to keep in mind. And so it's very important that we're getting adequate amounts of healthy fats from avocados, nuts, seeds, olive oils, whole eggs, wild caught fish in our diet. So I like to get in for around 40 to 50 grams of healthy fats in my diet um, through the course of the day. So those are the three main macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fats. And the micronutrients refers to the the vitamins, the minerals, the phytonutrients that are contained in plant food. And so all the vitamins that we talk about, vitamin A, C, D, E, uh, the B vitamins, those are all the micronutrients that are contained in food. And um, I think we're going to talk about 
you know, whether you can get enough of those micronutrients from food nowadays or not, we'll talk about that. But it's very, very important not to just focus on the macronutrients, but the micronutrients as well. And, and this is where um, making sure that we're paying attention to food quality is important because if we overlook that, chances are if we're eating the processed foods, um, they lack the micronutrients because they've been processed, they've been stripped of those nutrients, they're no longer in their whole food state. And so by leaning more towards whole foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, we're ensuring that we're getting those mi micronutrients in their natural form. And so I, you know, I consider myself a healthy eater. I try to get, you know, my macros and I try to get the micros in, but I also supplement my diet with various supplements. I keep it very simple, but I do take certain supplements. It, can we get enough of everything in our diet or should we supplement? That's a really big question great, that I great get question. often. I get this question asked all the time. Do I need to take these supplements? And so at the end of the day, it's personalized, right? It depends what the person's goal is. But as a good overview, unfortunately, it's becoming harder and harder to get adequate amounts of the micronutrients from our food only. Unfortunately, our soils are very depleted in nutrients nowadays. So the amount of micronutrients contained in foods has declined. And when you pair that with the suboptimal level of um, absorption and nutrition that people have, so not only are the nutrients not available, but not everyone is taking in the right foods. And the ones that are oftentimes don't have sufficient digestive capacity to absorb everything that they're taking, right? So when you think about all those, those three layers, it becomes a challenge to get adequate nutrition from whole foods only. Therefore, sometimes it's important to supplement with certain vitamins and nutrients on a personalized basis, depending on what your goals are and what you're trying to accomplish. And I do a lot of nutrient testing in my patients, and it's very rare to see someone who has optimal nutrition from only food sources, very rare. And, and let, you know, I like to follow the 80, 20 rule. So 80% of the time I'm eating extremely healthy and clean. And then 20% of the time, you know, I'm, I'm having things that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, I'm still not eating fast food and I'm still not eating like sugary products. I'm just choosing foods that I don't eat on a daily basis. What are your thoughts on the 80-20 rule and that 20%, should that be extremely, you know, healthy 20% or can we go all out and, you know, just smack down a big back? Great question. Uh, I love the 80-20 rule myself because, and that's something that I preach to all of my patients, because when patients come in, they think that, you know, I follow a perfect diet. I never eat anything bad. And, um, so, and they, they think that I expect the same from them. And if they do eat something bad, they're like, oh, I messed up and they go downhill. But the 80, 20 rule allows a little bit of forgiveness, right? It allows you to kind of enjoy life. And when you enjoy it, it's like, okay, I got, got it out of my system. Now let's get back on track. It's okay. You know, it's, this is a part of the plan. You know, I'm supposed to live my life and enjoy. And we can't always stick to a healthy club nutrition plan. It's impossible when we're out in restaurants, social situations things get in and situations cause us to eat things that we shouldn't have. So the 80-20 rule is a great rule to keep in mind. And the way I like to phrase it for my patients is we have about 21 meals a week, right? Three times seven equals 21. 
at 20%. That means four out of those 21 meals, approximately, we could enjoy life a little bit, right? And by that, I don't mean go and have, you know, a burger and fries and, and a bunch of ice cream, right? You don't want to just like stuff your face with all that because and go overboard because then you're kind of regressing and the next day you might feel it, right? That's what usually happens when you really, you know, get naughty and eat a lot of the things that you can have, you really feel it the next day. But it's okay to like, you know, diverge and have a little bit, enjoy a little bit and get back on track. So as a rule of thumb, you know, four meals a week, I allow myself to kind of get off track. So I might have, let's say, you know, some rice or I might have even a burger once in a while, you know, whatever it is I'm craving, I give it and I get back on track. So as a good rule of thumb, you know, that's really, really helpful because it allows us to kind of continue to build momentum and not just go down downhill because of one slip up that we had. You made a really valid point in that, you know, if you're going to go all out and you're going to have the burger, the fries, and then the milkshake, and then the fr whatever, whatever it is that you're going to eat, you feel it the next day. So what I find and what I tell my patients, when we're talking about food and how to be healthy is when you start eating really healthy and you, and you notice how efficient your body is, you have energy, you have vitality, you don't actually want to eat all those foods at once. So for me, having the hamburger is, is just enough to satisfy my appetite because I have to eat, uh, but I don't feel like having the frosty and the French fries and the ketchup and all that stuff. And it becomes a way of life. And I, I want to make that clear because eating well doesn't mean that you're not enjoying life. It just means that you're eating well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing that I think has been helpful for my patients is, you know, we kind of have to take, make it perspective shift. And instead of looking at food as, as something that satisfies our cravings, we need to look at food as more of fuel, you know, treating our body like a machine and understanding that food is truly fuel. And when you look at it like that, it kind of makes it easier. It's like, okay, I got to fuel my body with what it needs as opposed to me to get my brain what it's craving. I couldn't agree more, but I am sad to hear that I guess French fries really aren't a food group. When we come back, intermittent fasting, keto diet, and paleo. Connect with us on Twitter at 1059 The Region or call 416 335 1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. This is 1059 The Region. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 1059 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, Dr. Petty and I were talking about food. I'm always trying to find simple and easy ways for clients to understand that eating well and balance is important for optimal health. It's good for weight management as well. So I want to dive right into intermittent fasting. Let's talk about how intermittent fasting works, if it works, and why we should be doing it or why we shouldn't be doing it. Right. Intermittent fasting is a hot, hot topic nowadays. A lot of people that are reading about, about it, interested in it and trying it. And so, you know, in a way we've kind of been doing intermittent fasting for, you know, decades and, and centuries because fasting, right. We, that's been ingrained in many cultures over the years. And unfortunately, as we've gotten more and more access to food, we've become grazers. So all day we're just walking around eating food and that's a problem. Right. Because every time we're eating, we're just getting hits of 
blood sugar increases. So all day we're like hitting our blood, getting bumps in our blood sugar, bumps in our blood sugar all day, which, which could be problematic, right? For many reasons, not good for the brain, not good for, um, blood sugar response, not good for the gut. And so fasting kind of allows us to break that habit. And there's many, many ways to do fasting. Um, some people like to fast 13 hours every night. Others like to fast 16 hours, two, three times a week. There's a lot of different ways to go about doing it. Um, I personally make sure I get a 13 hour fast every night. So after dinner, I don't eat anymore until breakfast the next day. And that gives me around 13, 14 hours every night. And when I do that, I feel like in the mornings I'm more clear and my sleep quality is better because I'm going to sleep on an empty stomach, right? And that's, what's really important. You don't want to go to sleep with food in your stomach because when we're sleeping, the body wants to spend its resources and energy to repair itself. The body shouldn't be utilizing its energy and resources to digest that food, right? So when we're eating and then going to bed, our body is not doing its repair process because it's spending time to digest. So it's really important to understand why we want to do it fast. And the longer we push this fast out, we can hit 14, 15, 16 hours. It can have a lot of good effects on our cellular health, our brain health, our mitochondrial health, and our gut health. Our digestive system has something called a migrating water complex, which is pretty much to simplify it an internal vacuum that turns her on, turns on where there's no food in there and does housekeeping. So it's like, imagine like a broom that turns on and starts brushing away the debris and the garbage and everything in the gut, like housekeeping. And that is so, so, so important for our digestive health and overall health. And that happens when we fast, but if there's food in there, that internal housekeeping doesn't happen. And that's why it's really important to understand why do I need to fast, right? And so when we fast, this internal housekeeping happens, leads to a lot of, lot of benefits, cellular benefits, a something, a phenomenon referred to as autophagy. I don't want to get into two big words and it upregulates some genes that are important for mitochondrial health. Fasting does. So we could stay, we could intermittently fast every day for the rest of our lives and there will be no harm to our bodies. Um, it depends what your destination is, right? So if you're doing, let's say 13, 14 hours, I don't think there would be any harm really. I think it would be beneficial, but if you're extending it to like 16 hours, maybe more, maybe that, that might not be something good to do long-term and remember fasting at for that length of time is not beneficial for everyone. So those that have thyroid issues, blood sugar issues, or adrenal dysfunction, those people might not be a good idea to push their fast in that long. And so it's important to work with your doctor, someone who's trained um, in functional medicine and naturopathic medicine or nutrition that understands um, fasting and the physiology associated to it to help guide you if you have any of those conditions to know if it's right or wrong for you. But, you know, for 13, 14 hour fast to answer your question, it's safe, but long-term going extended periods, more than that might be important to work with someone to guide you through that process. So if you're going to fast and you've gone 13 hours, sometimes you get to the point where you're really hungry 
And, you know, then you just want to eat anything in sight. I feel like that's kind of counterproductive to fast for that many hours and then all of a sudden have something that's not nutrient dense. Right. So what do you recommend? You've had, you fasted for, let's say, 13 hours. How should we start our, you know, eating pattern for the day after a 13 hour fast? Great question. And, you know, that's where the word break breakfast break fast comes from because it's the meal that's designed to break that fast overnight right and so i think it's very important um to have a well-balanced breakfast so protein healthy fats and some fiber fiber nutrients so whether that looks like a smoothie for you with some berries organic berries avocado seeds a little bit of protein powder um and that's a good option, a smoothie or like a veggie omelet or even a tofu omelet. You know, those are all good options to have as breakfast. Um, I don't consider a bagel with cream cheese a good good way to break that fast because it's a lot of carbs, processed carbs. And remember, it's all about quality, right? A bagel is man-made. It's made in a factory. You want to pick things that are their whole food state, like eggs, like vegetables, like, you know, fruits, seeds, right? Not things made in a factory. So at the end of the day, you want to break the fast with something that's real food and it has a balance of the micro and macronutrients that we discussed. So before I go on to talk about keto diet, because that's another big one, I wanted to ask if you feel it's a really good idea to have maybe one day a week where you're eating only plant-based foods. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I recommend that to a lot of people um, because, you know, animal protein, uh, in, in high amounts, even in moderate amounts, depending on the quality where it's coming from can be problematic. And so sometimes when you take a break one day, allow your body to reset, I think it's a great idea. And plus that if you're removing those foods that day, it's encouraging you to eat more fiber, more plant food. So that could be beneficial as well. Well, let's get right into the keto diet because I feel like that is equally as po popular as intermittent fasting. So let's break down um, keto. Absolutely. That's a hot, hot buzzword and a lot of interesting information about the keto diet, right? So generally speaking, the keto diet is when you avoid all the carbohydrates and load up on fats and proteins to the point where your body utilizes fat as a currency to produce energy and not carbohydrates, right? And so what a lot of people do is Unfortunately, they stop eating all the carbs, all the fibers, all the plant foods, and they just eat a lot of like bacon, lard, and, and a lot of things that aren't very good. So that, that could be problematic. So I don't encourage that. Um, but you know, it, it could be done in a healthy way as well. Right. But as far as long-term effects are concerned, it, it might not be the right fit for everyone. Again, it's personalized because. I've seen, I've had patients that have done the keto diet. And then when I recheck their cholesterols, uh, it's been affected in a negative way. So some people, depending on their genetics, um, those that have an APOE4 genetic predisposition, some of you might be familiar with that. Those people respond in a negative way to a high fat diet. So those people, they can have elevated cholesterol because of the high amounts of fats in their diet. So. If you have that, you know, it's not a good idea to be on the keto diet. This is why I encourage everyone that is on the keto diet to be working with a doctor to have their labs checked, to check if it's affecting your cholesterol or not. 
and to know if it's right for you. So, you know, for some people, it could be great. You know, there's those people that have a lot of digestive issues, um, a lot of gas, bloating. For those people, it might be a good idea to do the keto diet because you're backing off the greens and some of those inflammatory um, things like processed foods that could be causing it. So that could be beneficial for those that are doing keto because you're just having like, you know, meats and whatnot. But the other problem could be that you're, you're depriving your body of fiber, right? When you're doing keto, you're not getting enough fiber. So constipation is a common thing that people experience. So yeah, you know, doing a short-term keto diet to kickstart the weight loss process could be a good idea, obviously under supervision, but long-term, you know, you really want to reconsider these options and you don't want to do anything extreme with your diet in the long-term unless it's supervised very closely. One thing before we start to wrap up that I'm very curious about is dairy, this conversation around dairy. Um, I know a lot of people try to avoid dairy. I'm one of those people. I don't eat a lot of dairy products. If I do, every once in a while, I'll have like goat cheese or sources from goat. I'm not actually sure if it makes a big difference. I just know that dairy for me is, a, I'm very sensitive to it. So when you're eating a keto diet, for example, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat a lot more dairy because it's higher in fat and it's lower in carbohydrates. So you tend to pack yourself full of dairy products, which I don't think is a great idea. I agree. And, and thank you for mentioning this because dairy is a very, very hot topic. I have patients that will come into my office and before we even get started, they'll be like, <laughs> I'll do anything, but don't take away my cheese right away. And, and, and so it's really, really fascinating. And so that led me to think about this. Like, why are people so fascinated to cheese? And when I did some research on it, it's very interesting. And I thought I'd share this. Dairy, specifically cheese, it hits the same parts of the brain that cocaine, drugs, alcohol, sex, and gambling do, right? What happens, casein, dairy has something called casein in it. It's a protein. When that casein combines with our stomach acid and our digestive juices, it becomes something called casomorphin. Casomorphine is literally morphine. It's literally a drug that hits the same parts of the brains that alcohol, drugs, and uh, sex, gambling, all those things do. So that's why we have to understand that dairy is hitting those pleasure centers in our brain because of this casomorphin, and that's why we're craving it. So it's really, really fascinating the effects that it can have on a brain. And so back to the discussion, is it good? Is it not good? Great question. So we all have heard of the term lactose intolerance, right? That means that the body is not able to tolerate lactose. And that's a real thing. Lactose is the carbohydrate in dairy. To break down lactose, we need an enzyme called lactase. Lactase is an enzyme we're all born but what happens as we reach four, five years of age is that the body's production of lactase, the enzyme, plummets, goes way down. And that's why as we get older, four or five years ago, four or five years old, uh, we become lactose intolerant because we're only meant to drink milk as babies and infants, right? And in, in fact, humans are the only organism that eats the milk of another animal, right? So something to keep in mind. And so the lactose intolerance is real. That is real. And so I have people say, oh, well, I'm drinking lactose intolerant milk, so I should be good. No, that's only one piece of the puzzle. 
because the next layer we need to look at is food allergies and food sensitivities, specifically IgE and IgG responses, which are different. IgE is a sudden reaction where if we get exposed to something and our skin can get irritated, we can have anaphylaxis, shortness of breath, hives, whatnot. That's instant. That's a food allergy. On the other hand, we have food sensitivities, which is an IgG response, and that's more delayed and can manifest as headaches, joint pain, digestive issues, brain fog. And so I test almost all my patients for food sensitivities, and a lot of times people are reacting to dairy. Not only are they reacting to the whey protein, they could be reacting to the casein protein or dairy as a whole. Uh, but I see a lot of IgG responses to dairy. And when I tell people to remove it, they feel a lot better. You know, the sinus congestion can be get better, uh, joint pain, digestive issues, all can get better. So we need to be mindful of that as well. So the lactose intolerance piece is one piece, and then the food sensitivity, food allergy is another piece. So given those factors, I really, really think it's beneficial um, to really keep dairy to a minimum and to avoid it. I personally try to avoid dairy as much as I can. Dr. Petty, I can't thank you enough. You're always so insightful. I enjoy chatting with you. And if listeners want to learn more about you or get all of your information, how can they do that? Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk about this topic. I hope it was helpful. And for those that are interested in learning more, I'm very, very active on social media, specifically Instagram and newly on TikTok. I have a lot of fun content on that platform. So if you're interested in learning more, look up Dr. Petty Natural Health, D-R-P-E-D-I Natural Health on Instagram and TikTok, and you can connect further there. Thank you so much. You can always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Michaela or my website, ClaudiaMichaela.com. That's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you all for joining me. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at HealthyPlanetCanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.